Welcome to Public Power Underground. I am Kieran Connolly, formerly of the Bonneville Power Administration. For those who don't know me, uh, I had a 30-year run with Bonneville, and I'm an unabashed fan of hydropower in the Pacific Northwest, public power, and hydro in particular. Uh, my formation at the Bonneville Power Administration uh, started with putting together and the subsequent meltdown of the California ISO in the 90s. That's where my romance with hydro began. I got to work on uh, various stalled Pacific Northwest RTO formations in the early 2000s, Columbia River Treaty implementation. Then I got into power operations, management of hydro assets, and federal legislation slash negotiations slash treaty arrangements between countries. And those gigs can wear on you. So I left Bonneville after 30 years in early 2022. And uh, I am now an unaffiliated member of the public. One of the things about the culture of the Bonneville Power Administration is we are tend to be humble and uh, avoid, honestly, take it as a, uh, a badge of honor to have a lack of appearances in the media. No, no offense, Ian. Uh, so this voluntary appearance is quite the turnaround. So now that I don't feel that cultural humility of BPA as much anymore, I can trumpet the benefits of the hydro system more freely. And so I'm really happy to be here on Public Power Underground. We have something that the country, uh, the rest of the country is super envious of, a massive carbon-free source of dispatch. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it today. We started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on enthusiasts, roll on We're likely I'm Paul Dockery I'm Ian Blitzer and I'm Abigail Sawyer. Joining as a sweet celebrity guest star is Kieran Connolly with a, a wonderful opening monologue. Welcome to the fifth season of Public Power Underground, Kieran. Thank you. This is a great way to start the season, talking about the value and benefits of the federal hydro system. And I assume like you're a public power enthusiast and electric utility enthusiast, right, Kieran? Oh, I'm a big public power enthusiast. You know, I think we have this amazing opportunity to bring the value of hydropower to people who wouldn't otherwise get it without public power. Yes, I, I think that is a wonderful take. Abigail, like we, we did the season finale last time. We did some some mailbag questions that were back. It's been a while, but we're back. We're back. It's we're great back. to be back. Yeah. Great to be talking about uh, dispatchable carbon-free resources in particular. Um, as I've said before, I usually focus on the Southwest, which has the nation's second largest carbon-free dispatchable resource, but it's not hydro. So, I don't know. Anybody in the trivia? <laughs> I'm going to go with geothermal. <laughs> no, no. no a new plant down there in oh. Phoenix. <laughs> so, yeah, the Palo Verde generating system. So. I'm uh, looking forward to getting into a little talk of the the failed attempts at the Northwest RTO as we look at the broader attempts for a Western RTO. 
later on. So stay tuned, guys. <laughs> stay tuned. A great transition. Uh, this week on today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching some utility, electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from the hydro operations angle, thanks to Kieran's presence. Uh, we'll talk markets, the Inflation Reduction Act, nuclear announcements, and energy emergencies. I miss the nuclear uh, there, Abigail, because it was like dispatchable clean. And then, I don't know. There's, I don't know. There's a little bit of, it's firm. Point. Firm. firm. I don't know. Dispatch. Sure. I got, that's why I got it wrong. I had to defend myself a little bit. No, I, I take that. That's a good yeah. point. Then uh, we're trying a couple new segments this season. First, an old segment with a new name. We're short-circuiting our way through the rest of the topics that we've missed during the break in a segment we're calling Short to Ground. It's a, it was an old name for the segment that we transitioned away from. Big fan of Short to Ground for the pun. And then we're going to close it out with an energy conundrum that I don't have a name for yet. But before we get started, a word from our presenting sponsor. The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit company that specializes in portfolio management and prides itself on leading communities through today's energy transformation. Owned by public power entities, TEA is more than just adjacent. They're as underground as it gets. TEA is on a mission to help clients maximize the value of their assets while meeting their power supply goals. By providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, advisory, and renewable solutions, TEA equips public power utilities with access to state-of-the-art resources and technology systems so they can respond competitively in the changing energy markets. With over 60 other public power utilities proudly partnering with TEA to tackle their energy future, it's time for you to consider breaking ground too. Let TEA help you navigate the uncertain future of our industry by visiting TEAINC.org to learn more. That's TEAINC.org to learn more today. This season, we're changing up and we're starting with Public Power Desktop, where we close out some browser tabs of energy and energy adjacent news. You got the first story brief. Take it away, Abigail. All righty. The Southwest Power Pool released its draft Markets Plus service offering on September 30th. The regional transmission organization plans to release a final version later this year and have utilities and other entities commit in early 2023 to fund the next development phase. So far, 12 entities have committed to supporting the next phase, and they're in two pockets, one in the Northwest and another in Arizona. They are BPA, Avista, Chelan, and Grant County PUD's PowerX, Puget Sound Energy, and Tacoma Power in the Northwest. And in Arizona, Arizona Electric Power Cooperative, Arizona Public Service, Salt River Project, and Tucson Electric Power. Other major news out of SPP's market initiative in the West is the hiring of Carrie Simpson as its Director of Western Services Development. Also, markets related in the West, Kaiso, the California Independent System Operator, has is continuing to develop its extended day-ahead market initiative. Kaiso released its draft final proposal for extended day-ahead markets on October 26th. An in-person meeting to discuss the proposal is scheduled for November 14th. The expectation is that Kaiso, the Kaiso Extended Day Ahead Market will launch in 2024 and SPP's Markets Plus offering will launch in 2026. Dan Catchpole covered SPP's release of its Markets Plus draft service offering for clearing up and California energy markets. To learn more, you can find a link in the show notes. 
Kieran, can you speak to market participation's impact on hydro generation and what evolution into a centrally dispatched market means for a hydrocentric region? Yeah, you know, I think hydro both loves and hates the central dispatch model. On, on the love side, because hydro typically is so much more responsive and flexible just inherently as a form of resource than other forms of resource, it performs really well in central dispatch models. You know, operators in a independent world have to deal with a lot of holdbacks that basically constrain a resource. And then 99% of the time, those holdbacks don't get used. So a lot of that potential of hydro can sit idle a lot of time. Whereas if you participate in a market, you can shorten up a lot of those holdbacks for reserves and for other things, make that capability available to the marketplace and hydro. Uh, will get dispatched. Um, it, it also gives hydro an opportunity to adapt to events as they're occurring. If, you know, with your hydro, you're always worried about operating now and operating next hour or next day. And with centrally dispatched markets, you can make course corrections um, with that market a little bit more easily than just within your own portfolio. On the hate side, uh, I think that, and a lot of this, I think, is more of a learning curve, maybe than a long-term hate. Okay. But there is there is a challenge at times with it too, in that you, you're when you have other constraints on your system, like for the federal hydro system, environmental ones or flood control, adapting those to a marketplace is scary, at least, and sometimes really hard. And, and so talk a little bit about the, like that at, adaptation. So you started it with like, it's probably just a matter of like doing the work. Uh, but like, is some of it like your big curves have to be reflective of this? Or is it even beyond like a big curve? It's like an operational constraint. I'm, I'm curious well, about how that's going to work. Yeah. So I think when, when markets are functioning well, I think it's uh, our experience at Bonneville, uh, uh, showed that you could do a lot of this with bid curves okay. when the market is functioning. But when the market starts to crack, and markets do crack, they get slammed against a roof or a ceiling, right? And then they don't perform as well. And uh, I think that's when, at least as a hydro operator, you get nervous about, are, are my resources going to get either drawn on or get pinned against a wall, in which case you're in sort of a a must offer an unlimited price situation or a getting sucked out and you have no more ability to stop that from happening. And again, particularly if you've got constraints you're up against, you know, how do you how do you protect your your system because the the pain can build over time with a hydro system, right? Because that battery capability can either be overloaded or drawn down. I'm trying to think a little bit about that kind of lesson. And so other other RTOs have some hydro resources within them. I'm specifically like WAPA participates in um, the Southwest Power Pool. Did, how different or similar is that lesson learned to what Bonneville is up against in ours? How, how much is there translatable? As someone who don't, does like, I'm just asking because you're the expert and you're here and I get to ask you. <laughs> Well, and I don't pretend to be an expert on WAPA's system. I have some familiarity with it. Um, so I do think a lot of the lessons are transferable. Okay. Um, one of the big challenges that I think Bonneville faces, and to a lesser degree, the mid-seas, is interlinked hydro. 
because we've spent you know decades uh, figuring out uh, how to maximize the the release of water from Grand Coulee to also make use of it at John Day and at Bonneville. Uh, and the mid seas do the same thing within the mid sea reach. And now you have this other optimization that's going on that's independent of that, right? That's a market optimization of a whole lot of resources. You want to benefit from that as well, but you don't want to give up the benefits of, of, uh, interlinked hydro as well. And so again, I don't think any of these things are necessarily insurmountable, but they're not necessarily easy. It takes a lot of work and you definitely don't want to get it wrong because the consequences can be pretty big, right? I mean, if we, if Bonneville steps in a bucket, um, I mean, for it, it's one thing just economically, right? And that would yeah. be very bad, right? To get a black eye in the market uh, on the buy or the sell side, but even worse would be blowing through an environmental uh, requirement and a required operation, or, I mean, the Corps will take the projects back and make sure you don't violate a flood control uh, operation. So uh, that probably converts itself into some kind of market non-compliance or something, but that would also be ugly as well, right? So it, it, these are serious topics that people are taking very seriously as they get into markets. Wow. I appreciate that insight. That's, uh, you know, you, as we are looking at the potential formation of a Westwide RTO, um, you know, it seems like, well, you know, what a great resource to have all that hydro, but there, you know, you've already optimized it for a more local, for more local operations. And uh, it's not as easy to scale up that quickly. And maybe not everybody should be so ready to just depend on it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, hydro hydro itself is a very dependable resource, but I think you have to take seriously that there are constraints on these resources. The federal system in particular, I mean, it does not really, it operates for power after, by and large, by and uh, after taking care of several other project requirements. It is not the number one yeah. driver of what those projects do. Like notoriously, there's a list, a hierarchy, right? And like power is seventh. What number is it, Kieran? Uh, it changes all the time, but it's well down the list of things that wow. have to be checked. Yeah. Wow. Uh, one of the like interesting topics that I um, probably shouldn't bring up because I don't really have a good way to frame it or think about it, but <laughs> you know, whether having a, like hydro being such a high proportion of like a Northwest centrally dispatched organized market would have some consequences on the market operation and like optimization. Uh, similar to like, I mean, Kaiso is doing this a little bit with battery technologies where they're coming up with some new rules around uh, how to model and uh, dispatch batteries. And in some ways, hydro is just a longer duration battery that has this opportunity cost built in and how much like how much work there did did Bonneville do or were you working on to kind of communicate to these uh, market operators the oper like the value that opportunity how it's a it's a limited fuel but you can move it um because yeah. it does seem like it's a different paradigm than a natural gas plant not unique though I mean California has hydro facilities that have that same capability is that new uh or is that something that's already been kind of dealt with satisfactorily no it it, it was a big part of Bonneville's conversations uh, with California about joining the EIM. Um, and I think it's even more important as you get into 
uh, more forward markets like these day ahead proposals and and a full form RTO would bring more challenges uh, with it as well. The EIM is probably the simplest version because it yeah. really is the you know that very short term uh, market, and you can do other things with your hydro outside of that to uh, adjust and uh, and deal with issues coming up from your participation. Uh, the more forward markets you get in, the more you get into this question of hydro has this battery component, as you said, uh, associated with it. Um, but it's also not a battery component that is based on perfect knowledge, right? Because you got inflow right. uncertainties and all these other things that we're constantly working to improve forecasting on. And uh, so that whole question of the the opportunity value of that storage, how to both tap it from a market perspective. Um, I know it's kind of a, for Bonneville, it's hard for us to get our heads around. There's a lot of anxiety, I think, from markets about also potential market manipulation with that. And, you know, when you're part of the federal government, the idea of manipulating markets is so foreign because there's no payoff for it and only punishment. So, um, but, but on the other hand, you can understand it intellectually, right? That that's, that that's a concern. So. Yeah. So it's a lot of that conversation in the formation of markets on the opportunity costs to the department of market monitoring. Is that kind of who you're trying to make sure you comply with develop rules and comply with rules to make sure that uh, it's not, that you aren't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You yeah. aren't uh, a bad actor in the market. You're just yeah. trying to leverage your resources. Yeah. As an operator, it was more the trading floor side folks at Bonneville that had those conversations. But yes, definitely the market monitor was someone that Bonneville was engaging with. It's also just the folks at the CAISO who are actually yeah. designing uh, their you know, the market itself, right, to make sure, A, we understood what tools were there for us to to use. And they understood the, the conundrums that we were trying to solve because we've done a lot of thinking about how to get the most out of this interlinked hydro system. So when we can explain that to the to the folks who are designing the market, they can say, oh, well, you could, you know, replicate that over here, which the market monitor folks wouldn't necessarily know that, right? Um, yeah. Or they'd say, oh, yeah, you, that's something we haven't run into before. And then we could sit down together and try to figure out, is there some way to solve that? Yeah, opportunity-based resources and linked resources are kind of two new angles here. I hadn't really yeah. thought too much about the linked, the linking, the linked nature of the federal system. Really cool. Ian, did you have anything to add or should we head, hit to the next one? I think we're ready. Okay, let's do the next story. On August 16th, President Joe Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which we have officially been instructed to refer to as IRA, not the IRA, which includes energy and climate tax incentive and spending provisions totaling nearly $370 billion. The new law for the first time allows direct payment of production tax credits and investment tax credits, nonprofit electric utilities, deploying renewable resources and energy storage, as well as tax incentives for other technologies, including nuclear power, carbon capture, and hydrogen production. For entire podcasts about the contents of the law, Paul recommends David Roberts' podcast called Volts. He had a long discussion with Princeton professor Jesse Jenkins and UC Santa Barbara professor Leah Stokes about the bill right before it passed, and a two-part episode going over the bill in deep detail with Jesse Jenkins afterward. 
This law is expected to accelerate the energy transition, onshore the manufacturing and mining of critical components of clean energy technologies, and invest in communities impacted by the transition from fossil fuels. For coverage of the Inflation Reduction Act by news data, you can find links to coverage by Jim DePeso and Abigail Sawyer in the show notes. What's your perspective, Karen, on increased deployment of wind and solar in the Northwest, and how will and how that will impact either hydro operations or grid planning overall? Yeah, I, I think it will be interesting to see how the development plays out. Um, a few things come to mind. One, I, I, and I'm not well versed in the details of the IRA, uh, but. I'm disappointed to see the uh, continuation of production tax credits as a as a driver, I guess, for development. I think it creates distortions in the electric marketplace in general, but particularly for hydro, because when you're incenting folks to produce energy when the grid doesn't need it, it creates uh, notorious problems. And you know, at Bonneville, unfortunately, we 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 really struggled with those in the early two thousands. Um, but I think the maybe the big broad question for this will be: Will the IRA certainly it will influence renewable uh, development? And there'll be good news if we can get out to offshore and into Montana and diversify our wind fleet some. But the bigger thing would be if it could in, actually be the thing that finally incents some transmission development. Uh, transmission development notoriously falls behind. And if you're thinking about a link to hydropower operations, hydropower benefits from there being a relatively open highway, right? You don't get conflicts with your hydro operations and your transmission grid. Uh, when you have a congested highway, that's a, that can be a problem. I think there's plenty of interest in developing it, uh, the transmission that is, but uh, plenty of barriers, unfortunately, too. Yeah. So, and I don't know, you know, as we as we saw what happened with, you know, the accelerated permitting legislation that came up shortly after, uh, politicians couldn't agree on what needed to happen to, to bring that transmission online more quickly. So, yeah, yeah I think I think history and politics would tend to suggest to us that transmission will continue to be a problem. I guess I was trying to find a, a glow of hope. Yeah. Silver lining. <laughs> One thing I, I, sorry. No, go Abigail. I'm just, you know, going back to this notion of, you know, hydro as a battery, however, um, you know, there is the whole issue of if you have extra resources when you don't need them, you could certainly apply those to pumped storage. And that's a direct, well-known, effective, I mean, you know, if you've got a dam in place, that works pretty well. Um, I don't know that you need to add much to Grand Coulee, but, you know, um, it's just a really interesting, it makes hydro an interesting resource to have on the system because you can avoid curtailment of some of the renewables when you don't need that power um, by using hydro as a battery. Yeah, yeah I mean, on the... I think on the Columbia, the trick is our storage relative to just our water is very, very small. So our, our ability to store excess hydro, uh, excess renewables, it's there, but it's limited and we've yeah. seen it get overwhelmed. I could, I could see that that probably is not the best candidate for that. So, but. Can, so there is uh, some history, right? This You mentioned the production tax credit has this incentive where you end up with negative price power. Uh, especially when a bunch of wind is blowing and the sun's out and 
we're we're seeing it now um, with in the CAISO and by participating in the energy imbalance market, you can you know you actually can do some on peak off peak arbitrage uh, with the federal system. It's actually pretty well suited to that kind of on peak off peak. But when when you get overwhelmed. You, you end up running into some of environmental constraints. Can you talk about like that experience with the federal agency and, and where, where that led and the, because this is the fact of the matter now, this is, this is the legislation with it's there. Uh, there probably are, there's some great arguments about why the production tax credit is, is a, a good way to, for a policy perspective to get a coalition moving. Um, but it, could you talk a little bit about like, where's the opportunity there? Where's the opportunity with all those renewables in the federal system? Is it focusing on transmission development or is it, uh, just kind of gutting it out? Yeah. Well, so I do think, right. I mean, hydro forever has basically, uh, utilized fuel arbitrage itself. Right. I mean, that's, that's why. You know, natural gas typically is the marginal uh, market setter, and then hydro will worry about what it thinks uh, electricity prices are going to be tomorrow versus today and decide whether or not to store in the battery or discharge from the battery yep. uh, in simple terms. And wind then plays into that the same way. If there's too much wind on the system, uh, hydro will try to soak it up if it can, and it will, uh, and it will discharge if that wind isn't blowing. You know, I think certainly I think there will be continued opportunities on the transmission side for, you know, Bonneville as a federal agency and for the IOUs to develop their transmission systems to help support that wind development. I think the challenge we've had in the Northwest, and this is if you had an RTO, you can put this problem under the table, but we can't get to an RTO because people are worried about who's going to pay more for transmission going forward. And, you know, is it the, the makers of the energy or the consumers of the energy that get to pay for the new transmission line seems to be the unanswered question that has plagued us in the West for ever. Yep. So I, uh, on the transmission side, I listened to a hopeful uh, mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, the Catalyst with Shale Khan had a wonderful episode that talked about like new technologies and the technology deployments uh, in, in high voltage transmission, uh, which may be hopeful. Uh, there is, to your point, Karen, it would be nice to see some uh, federal legislation to invest more in, in transmission technologies. There's a lot of grant funding available and some uh, some loan office funding through the in, uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that IRA doesn't have. Uh, I don't think it has much for, by way of transmission incentives, as I recall. Though so Now that I've said that, I'll get corrected. Send me that. Yeah, correct me on Twitter, at a power manager. Happy to hear it. Um, anything else on kind of the IRA and hydro operations, nuclear? Hey, hey, we've been talking about solar and wind. Is it a bigger deal for hydro operations that nuclear has this production tax credit and maybe should be, would be like, you talk about wind and solar, those ebb and flow. There's no arbitrage opportunity on, uh, on nuclear. It's just going to run all the time. Or I have that wrong. Well, I. Uh, well, I think you're right uh, historically, but we have increasingly seen nuclear uh, large station nuclear plants uh, cycle their operations. It, it's interesting. Energy Northwest here uh, in Washington 
working with Bonneville, both because they have some unique uh, technology in their variable speed pumps, um, but also because, you know, Bonneville, we have a high spring freshet and the, you know, oversupply from both water and wind. Uh, we had conversations early on with Energy Northwest about dispatching that project down in periods of oversupply, right? I mean, the marginal cost of nuclear is low, but if you're faced with a zero or negative marketplace, um, then you want to, as whenever safe and reliable to do so, um, back off that nuclear plant. So we've actually, uh, for some time now, had an economic dispatch agreement with Energy Northwest uh, for that plant. But and you're if, seeing folks all over the country do the same thing. If there's new nuclear that's eligible for a production tax credit or an investment tax credit, then they're going to have a dispatch price that's all the way negative anyway, right? Yeah, which brings you back me back to my general. And I, I understand that there's also problems with the investment tax credits. So you pick your poisons from a policy perspective. As an operator, though, I can't stand the distortion that comes from that. Um, well, I want to run even though there's no, just so we can dissipate this energy into space somewhere. <laughs> um, as a good transition to our next story. Why don't you, why don't you kick it off, Abigail? It's an excellent transition. According to a joint press release on October 27th, Pacificor and TerraPower will study the feasibility of deploying up to five more of TerraPower's natrium small modular reactors and storage systems in Pacificor's territory by 2035. The joint study will evaluate, among other things, the potential for advanced reactors to be located near current fossil fuel generation sites enabling Pacificor to repurpose existing generation and transmission assets for the benefits of benefit of its customers, the release states. It's worth noting that the IRA, I didn't get the memo that it's IRA now. Anyway, it's worth noting that IRA provides increased incentives for deploying clean energy technologies in energy communities, which include communities with fossil fuel generation that face retirement. In a story with a similar theme, the head of the federally owned Electric Utility Corporation has been doing a circuit of conferences talking about deploying 20 or more small modular reactors to meet the power needs of the region. In August, the Tennessee Valley Authority announced that they entered an agreement with GE Hitachi to take steps toward deploying a BWRX-300 small modular reactor at the Clinch River nuclear site near Oak Ridge. And more recently, the president of TVA, Jeff Lyash, has spoken about the need to expand nuclear to meet decarbonization goals and that the utility's initial efforts to build small modular reactors near Oak Ridge will serve as a model to construct more than a dozen such reactors in TVA's seven-state region. For stories about Pacificor's partnership with TerraPower, you can read Steve Ernst's coverage in Clearing Up. To learn more about TVA's nuclear program and where it's headed, we'll have a link in the show notes. Let's start with your thoughts on SMRs in a hydro-dominated region like the Pacific Northwest, Kieran. Well, you know, I, I think the... The electric industry's big problem right now is how to get carbon-free dispatchable capacity. And even in the Pacific Northwest, if we want to get to carbon zero, uh, and particularly if we want to electrify, um, we're going to need help along with the hydro system here as well. So I think some technology is coming. SMRs kind of look like the leader in the clubhouse at the moment because they 
Now there's regulatory hurdles and it seems like everything, right? We talked momentarily before about um, pump storage hydro, which is another proven technology. But all of these things between regulatory requirements and lawsuits probably have a 10-year lead time on them, which is going to scare any investor. Um, but we're going to have to do something if we're going to keep the electric grid up. So I think the interesting thing in the Pacific Northwest is if you look at, at the geography and you say, gosh, where you would like to build SMRs and then where you probably politically can build them are probably not the same places. Um, so that's an interesting grid planning uh, problem for folks to solve. So INL is not an optimal location for an SMR from... Well, I mean, I would say Seattle and Portland might be uh, ideal locations, but I'd say Idaho and Utah are more likely if they get built. So I'm curious on like your takes of like energy technologies that would meet this like flexible, clean, flexible firm. What's some combination of words like that seem to make the most sense. What, so where are you at on like SMRs versus geothermal versus just give me more transmission and let's diversify kind of the geography of these other types of more, quite frankly, solar and wind or they're, they're, right. they're not, uh, they're easier to deploy. Well, that's, I think a good framing for solar and wind. Right. Yeah. I, well, I would say, first of all, I don't think geothermal, I think that's going to be a niche case, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's availability, um, we gotta least. get you listening to some more podcasts here. And there's a whole, there's whole <laughs> like, uh, it's like the, 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 uh, what's the advanced, uh, drilling technologies for, for like fracking and stuff, like uh, deploying those mm -hmm. so you can have geothermal anywhere. It's like a thing. It's a thing. I missed, I missed the other technology angle, which is long duration storage, like the iron air battery. Yeah. I'm just throwing more at you, Kieran, throw more at yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I, at least, um, at least, and I will admit, my geothermal uh, history is more looking backwards and hearing about a lot of dry holes. Um, but uh, in my discussions, at least at the time, I was with Bonneville at DOE. Um, there was nobody running around saying long duration batteries are just around the corner. Um, they were still very theoretical and not commercially viable. And so I think it leaves you with things like, I mean, SMR is probably, based on what I've seen there, that looks like the technology's there. It's the matter of, is there a regulatory construct and the political will to build them? Build them. Um, and that's really what the other big technologies come down to, too. I mean, I think there's, if, if you were simply to look at it on an engineering basis, there's a role for pump storage hydro. I, I don't think we're going to do that in the meaningful quantities either, because I think the the legal, regulatory, political risk is too high. And also, isn't there just the, the kind of geographic niche is almost the same as geothermal for pump hydro. <clears throat> that you need ele a big elevation changes where you can put water and some up like you can't like it's not modular. It's not modular. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. No, um, you're right. I wanted, I, I wrote initially a, a, like a punchline question for you of whether the TVA proposal was a whoopsie <laughs> or a doozy, <laughs> like a play on whoopsie daisies. And do you, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm going to show you where I came from. Do you know where the term doozy comes from? Like it's a doozy? Cause I do. I don't. 
Okay, so the Duesenberg automobile is like a premium top of the line automobile in like the 20s and 30s. And the Duesenberg was always that was their that was their advertising. It's a doozy. And uh, Auburn, Indiana was just like 30 minutes, 20 minutes from where I grew up and the Auburn Court Duesenberg Museum. My grandfather volunteered that after his retirement. That's the story of doozy. So with the background, is this a whoopsie or a doozy? to have 20 SMRs. If, if uh, Bonneville were proposing this, would we be very worried about a whoopsie situation here? Well, first of all, I think TVA is very good at getting deals where the risk to TVA's customers are relatively low. So I'd say I'd lean doozy. Um, and, and uh, you know, and I think, I think if that sort of opportunity presented itself in the Bonneville system, I would say the same thing, I think, because I think we're going to need we are going to need more dispatchable capacity in this region. Um, You know, if we if we the odds are we're going to continue down the solar wind path and that's going to lead to lots of opportunities for folks who have the dispatchable capacity, because that's the only way you're going to keep the lights on. Well, that or really painful. feathering slash solar dumping events. It's not the most efficient outcome, probably. Like not the least cost opportunity for serving the needs of your load. Um, Right, right. I mean, the cost per unit of usable energy is going to go way up for those resources over their lifetime. You know, the more and more percentage of what they can produce, you have to just throw away. Yep. You're spreading that capital cost over a smaller thing. Absolutely. Anything else, Abigail? You're coming off mute. You got something? I uh, thinking about geothermal. There, it there's a lot of it out there. Actually, sorry about that. That's why oh. I keep going on, on and off of mute. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, there's so much geothermal, particularly in the Southwest. I mean, it's out there. We know it exists. And one thing that I think is really interesting. You mentioned dry wells and history, and they're working at figuring out better strategies for drilling to get geothermal. But as we wean ourselves off of fossil fuels, I think you'll see a lot of people very interested in trying to drill those wells because it's the same technology. And if we're throwing money at carbon capture and SMRs and so on and so forth, and we want to preserve jobs, I, I think you're going to see some pretty interesting geothermal prospecting. I like that take a lot because it is the workforce and the industry and the competency, the translatable skills. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of what's going on with this like energy community idea in the infl- in the IRA. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act has like it's it's wanting to use and re like take that workforce, take that industry yeah. and deploy it in useful ways. And maybe Very, geothermal yeah. is a way to do Similar that. Similar trainings and, you know, pretty much identical equipment. I've, I've talked with folks. So. Yep. And similar area too. So, you know, where, where they're drilling for a lot of oil and gas, they can turn around and drill for hot water. Yep. Okay. Ian, you got the next story. On uh, September 6th, Kaiso issued an energy emergency alert level three effective at 5.17 PM as electricity supplies ran low in the face of record heat and demand. Demand in Kaiso peaked at 52,061 megawatts during the multi-day heat wave. This event is the most recent in a series of stress grid conditions and power system events in the West. For instance, the Pacific Northwest heat dome event that saw historic summer peak loads late June 2021. An emergency 
an energy emergency alert three for Kaiso in August of 2020, and an extremely constrained system in the Northwest in March of 2019 led to mid-sea day ahead prices set, settling in the thousands. A pattern of extreme events and grid stress that seems like, like it is likely to continue Given the status of our celebrity guest star as a hydro operation expert, we thought we'd lean into the topic through the lens of how the hydro system works in tight conditions and what measures get taken to protect Northwest load. Kieran, are you at a point where you can tell us the steps you took in March 2019 when we were in very tight conditions? Well, this is where, you know, when you get in those tight conditions, I have to say, I think your, your memory starts to blend these events together. So when I think about March of 2019, I have to ask myself, well, gosh, no, am I thinking about August of 2020? Or am I thinking about <laughs> November of 19? Or am I, you know, but, but I can say in general, you know, the first thing that that comes to mind when you think about these kinds of events is that oftentimes, particularly in around the water cooler, people like to ask the question of, well, you know, what caused that event, you know? And when we think about like Texas a couple of years ago or California and its various events that it, it's had, people like to say, oh, it was the fill in the blank. You know, it was the wind not blowing. It was the gas plant infrastructure failing. And in my experience, it's usually five things go wrong to create a bad event. Uh, it's never one. And so the first thing that you're trying to do on the hydro system is really know as much as you can know about any stress condition you're heading into. And that starts with forecasting what your own system's capabilities are going to be and what kind of loads you think you're facing yourself and understanding that as well as you possibly can. And in the Northwest, it's one of those things actually that we have this incredible investment in you know, 80, 90, 100 years worth of hydro data and then we're really focusing on this question of, you know, what is climate change and the last 30 years, you know, doing to that hydro system. So I think that's something that folks in the Northwest are spend a lot of time and energy on uh, in order to then best utilize the hydro system. But really what you're trying to do in these sorts of stress events, as you head towards them, you're trying to build up that battery. So you're storing where you can to maximize your capability to respond to trouble. And then we're always working on the hydro system. There's always something to maintain or repair on the hydro system. So we've got units out across the system, but when you're headed into any kind of stress condition that you see coming, then you try to take those, you know, defer that maintenance, get that unit back, maximize your capacity on the system. And then you're just monitoring the heck out of what happens because these crises are never one event and because they rarely play out exactly the way you model them, then you're, you're utilizing that great flexibility that hydro has to actually say, okay, so when am I going to dip into the storage? Am I going to hold off? Um, am I going to build it up a little bit more? Cause now tomorrow looks worse. And so you have to have folks, you know, we have folks that work 24 by seven, rolling water downhill through all those bathtubs and it, it really takes a creative mindset for to have people uh, in those positions that can basically adapt the plan uh, on the fly feed that back to our short-term planners who have to be creative folks who are then adapting a plan as well for the next day and the week after that 
um, and keep that feedback loop going all the time. So, you know, that those are really the steps, though. It's plan, gather as much data as you possibly can, and react on a constant cycle basis. And because of the kind of interconnected nature of our, the dams, like you do have to make decisions, I assume, days in advance, or not, maybe not days, but yeah, in, days. Advance, in, in advance <laughs> of the event, right? It, whatever the forecasted event is to make sure you're positioned right. Is that, that's right. Is that part of what you're doing? Yeah, no, that's correct. I mean, it takes, it takes uh, multiple days for water to get from Grand Coulee to Bonneville, so... And so I'm going to loop this back to to kind of in an organized market where you're an opportunity based resource, like the kind of days day ahead planning, right for um, for tight conditions and stuff. Is it going to be better in something like a centrally dispatched market where there's more market intel um, on what's coming ahead because they do run these, you know run the market for future days to give some signals. Is that going to be better to understand tight conditions or, or will it have negative impacts because of constraints on, because of market monitoring? Um, you know, I think the hope is it'll be better. Um, I, I think in some way, I mean, obviously you're going to have to meet the kind of test that the market has that says, Hey, you're bringing, um, your your share of resources to the party and not just leaning all over markets. But on the other hand, in some ways, the market, with again, within reason, is freeing and that you can operate your resources to how you want to operate them instead of just simply looking at, here are my loads and my resources. Um, I mean, again, you have to translate that through your offers and through your bid curves and all of those things and you have to do it well right otherwise you can mess it up but assuming that you do it well it it should um, give you more opportunity to achieve that efficient dispatch the the other place i wanted to take this one was to like what's happening in the southwest with the uh like lake mead and what glen canyon dam and so the drought conditions and how they're impacting hydro generations so you like these events we had they weren't terrible water years you know even like last year was a good water year when kaiso was having their issue was that Man, that was 2020 that was 2020 so it was more than last year <laughs> uh but even this september like it was a good water year no um, no it was not <laughs> I mean, uh, this year or 2020, sorry, this year. I mean, this year we're just like generate we're, we're uh, yeah, I was talking in the Northwest, in the Northwest. Oh, it was a good water year gotcha. for Bonneville's purposes, but yeah, uh, can you talk a little bit about like, uh, is this drought conditions that they're seeing in the Southwest at these dams? Are we susceptible to that in the future? It's kind of where I was going with it. Is the Northwest susceptible? Yep. That's, uh, well, I mean, you got to think about that. I mean, the Southwest is a desert, it, you know, and it always has been. And the Northwest is the opposite of that. So, you know, and I haven't looked at any, you know, long-term climate projections for what the Northwest is headed for. Uh, it could be more rain. Uh, things are, they're just, things aren't as dependable as they once were. And there was clearly not a lot of advanced planning on how you handle 
taking Lake Mead and uh, Lake Powell out of the <laughs> generation picture. I mean, not that we have quite gotten to that, but they're scrambling, you know, yep. and it, just to make sure that the power is flowing there. And it, it's it's really scary. And talking about all the policy issues and considerations and the fact that, as Kieran has illustrated very well, you know, dams and water aren't just about power. <laughs> they're really about other things, too, um, particularly agriculture um, and drinking water, et cetera, et cetera, for these, yeah. this really fast-growing region. So this is going to be an interesting thing to watch. Meanwhile, I do want to say that, you know, we didn't have rolling blackouts in September, and we had peak load. You know, we set a record down here. And so it's really a success story, especially considering that we couldn't rely as heavily as we have in previous years on those sources um you know and I, I don't have all the numbers the facts and figures before me and now you know it, it's been raining here the, for the last week so uh those those hot days seem seem very distant but we did it we did it with demand response we did it with you know conservation and at the home and business level we did it with batteries and renewables and all kinds of stuff so i, th I think there's a lot of hope there so absolutely yeah. And again, it, like just to Karen's point that when it goes wrong, it's, you know, despite people wanting to point fingers and it's not one thing, it wasn't one thing that allowed it to go right this time either. It was this whole combination of stuff. But there were some really serious and um, unprecedented, you know, uh, problems that we had to confront. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> exciting. Uh, it's, it's exciting these days. Oh. It's really exciting. And you know, I, I think I think the spin is like, oh, California came so close to rolling blackouts, but you know, but we didn't get there. That's so that's that's good news. Yep. Any other yeah, commentary what? on the differentiators, Kieran, between the different federal hydro systems? Wherever you were gonna go, I cut you off, but yeah, no, it, uh, one of the things I tried to do uh, the last few years at Bonneville was actually go around and talk to groups about this because there is a tendency in the Pacific Northwest, the, the narrative, because there's a lot of, of coverage there, is to assume that what's happening in California is happening here. And, you know, I am definitely, I'm not an expert on Mead and Powell, but even from where I sit, you know, the trajectory there was set decades ago and uh is being fulfilled now even before you talk about climate change right i mean that that pathway towards being empty uh we've been on that one for a long time uh, you know what we see when because we we are studying the question of what does the future hold for river flow in the pacific northwest we're doing it for power production reasons we're doing it for flood control reasons and we're doing it for fish reasons uh, and for irrigation reasons and other reasons I'm probably not remembering to mention, but those ones for sure. And what we see, and it's uncertain, right? We There's a band, certainly a band of uncertainty and things we don't know about this. But what we see is that climate change actually means probably either the same or more precipitation in the Columbia River Basin. Uh, it probably means less snow in the winter, um, which in the short run is perversely kind of good for hydro. Um, right, because the water—it's not great for fish. Uh, it's, it's great for, for hydro winter, power winter production because it means a winter peaking region, which we still will be for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, uh, that means more production at the time when you need it more, and so um, 
the prospects in the Northwest uh, look good. We refill our reservoirs every year. Again, we only have enough storage capability here to store, I think, I'm doing this from memory, about a third of our annual runoff, whereas a lot, a lot of systems uh, have you know, multi-multi-year storage. And that can be a blessing and a curse because you can draw that multi-year storage down um, and have trouble refilling it again. Um, you know, we now we can have bad water years here. And one of the things that the climate models do suggest is volatility is going to happen here in the Northwest more too. We have not seen that on the downside recently. We have not had a horrible water year. Um, we've had horrible water seasons. 2015 wasn't great in the summertime, but uh, yeah, no kidding, knock on wood. Uh, but we have not had a truly bad water year in quite some time in the Pacific Northwest. So, um, and we hope we don't again. I mean, this year- We're gonna cut this because you just it. jinxed it. We're gonna cut this part yeah. out. And see if we, <laughs> we probably should, we probably yeah, should. Although I'm not in the position of uh, running Bonneville's operations anymore. So, you know, I, all I have to do now is worry about keeping my own lights on. But. <laughs> Some of us still got to work and uh, still got to deal with this stuff, Karen. You aren't the only one. <laughs> and, and I might want to do it again someday. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> um, I think that that's, I think a good conversation. Ian, anything to add on that one? I got nothing. I, you got, I called you in so late. You didn't get to prep at all. I'm sorry, man. Um, all right, I think we're ready to, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to close out the episode with two more segments. I wrote this wrong. You'll notice some of my writing is a little bit rusty. Haven't been writing as uh, diligently as before, but we're going to do a quick rundown of stories with the TLDR segment called Short to Ground after this promo. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. This is Short to Ground, a segment where we blow a fuse covering the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Kieran Conley. And we're shorting, shorting to, to ground. ground. membership elected Steve Wright, former head of BPA in Chelan County PEV, to be on its board of directors. And the Western Power Pool Board of Directors approved a state of nominees who would serve on the group's new independent board of directors. WPP board chairperson Bill Drummond is the current board member selected to serve with the new directors. Susan Ackerman, Michelle Bertolino, Doug Howe, and Andrew Ott. 
a couple friends of the underground on there. Susan Ackerman and Michelle Bertolino have both been on Public Power Underground. Arizona's second largest utility, Salt River Project, plans to bring 340 megawatts of grid-charged battery storage online by summer 2024 and has increased the capacity originally sought in a 2021 request for proposals. The new battery resources will bring SRP's total battery storage capacity above 800 megawatts in 2024, the public-owned utility said in an October 27th news release. See coverage by Abigail Sawyer in the November 4th edition of California Energy Markets. November 8th is election day and Abigail Sawyer wrote up a piece in the October 28th edition of California Energy Markets on how the 2022 elections could dramatically affect energy policy in Southwest states that have adopted plans to aggressively decarbonize their energy portfolios and increase renewable energy resource development within their borders in recent years. Next up, the Public Power Council continues to press on concerns over a NOAA fisheries report on rebuilding salmon and steelhead runs in the Columbia Basin. PPC provided comments on the report in a letter to the Columbia Basin Collaborative, identifying numerous scientific flaws and stating that it should not be used as a basis of consensus in the Columbia Basin Collaborative process. More coverage by Casey Mahaffey in Clearing Up. An energy tech startup, Zap Energy, plans to conduct a feasibility assessment of delivering a nuclear fusion reactor in Centralia, the site of Washington's last coal-fired power plant. The company is trying to develop the first practical fusion reactor. Nuclear fusion generates energy by pushing together two atomic nuclei to form a heavier nucleus, which releases energy. It is the same process that fuels the sun and other stars. Check out the story by Dan Catchpole in Clearing Up for more. It's once again worth mentioning that the Inflation Reduction Act provides increased incentives for deploying clean energy technologies in energy communities, which include communities where fossil fuel generation has been shut down with, with like Centralia. Extra money for clean energy resources because of IRA. Concerns over growing volatility and other risks have led three BPA preference customers Benton, Pacific, and Grays Grays Harbor County PUDs to switch from slice block to load following contracts starting October 1, 2023. Dan Catchpole covered the news for clearing up. I didn't include this, but now I just want to ask you, like cold, never, you weren't prepped for this. You probably like that as an operator at Bonneville Federal's Hydro System to have more load following and less slice block customers. You know, um, originally, yes, but we got to a place where we you got there. Pretty, you got there. We were pretty happy with with our relationship with Slice Customer. Good. So you got there. We, Kieran, thank you we for were, getting there. We were indifferent. You know, that's right. where I want you to be. I want you to be indifferent. I want you to be indifferent. Okay. Klatskin has the slice block customer at Bonneville. Northwest Natural withdrew its application for a proposed one megawatt, $10 million pilot project in Eugene, Oregon, which would have been Oregon's first clean clean hydrogen production facility. After local opposition raised concerns about the plant location and the effectiveness of using hydrogen to decarbonize a natural gas system, learn more from Steve Ernst's coverage in Clearing Up. Discussions continue around operations in the Colorado River Basin in response to ongoing drought conditions. The Bureau of Reclamation is starting the process of revisiting the interim operation guidelines for Glen Canyon and Hoover Dams in 2023 and 2024, which the federal agency said is necessary to provide additional alternatives and measures needed to address the likelihood of continued low runoff conditions across the basin. 
Linda Daly Paulson has additional details in her article for California Energy Markets. Other brief mention, mentions from the Energy News Roundup, the Coeur d'Alene Tribe Natural Resources Department was selected to receive a $500,000 NOAA Climate Program Office grant to improve drought resilience on the Coeur d'Alene Reservation in Idaho. The funds will help restore and monitor wetlands as a way to combat drought, according to a news release from the tribe. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today is at $82 per megawatt hour, with natural gas at $8 per MMBTU translating to a spark spread of $26 and a heat rate of 10,250. Spot power in Southern California is at $90.51, Northern California $94.22, and the desert Southwest at $48.25. December natural gas at Henry Hub increased to $6.26.8 per MMBTU, up 15 cents from last Wednesday to yesterday. The price of the 12-month strip, averaging December 2022 through November 2023, futures contracts at Henry Hub climbed $0.08 cents to $5.531 per mm BTU. And so for the August, September, October period, since at negative one, Oceano Nino index, the multivariate ENSO index for August, September is negative 1.78. And the SST consolidated Nino forecast indicates that there is a greater than 75% probability for continue, continued La Nina conditions through February. This week in NOAA climate forecasts, the six to 10 day outlook has below normal temperature and precipitation for the region. The 30-day outlook issued October 31st shows leanings for above average temperatures and above normal precipitation for the Northwest, and normal temperatures with a leaning for above average precipitation for California. The 90-day seasonal outlooks issued on October 20th is for normal temperatures in the Northwest, above average temperatures in California and the Southwest. Precipitation outlook in the 90-day forecast has a leaning for above average precipitation in the Northwest, below average in the desert Southwest, and normal in between. Lastly, checking Northwest water supply forecasts, October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 2023 are currently forecast to be 88% of normal. little surprising. And October through September is at 93%. Remember, folks, it's still early in the water year. Day-ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday was 1,287 feet. That's it for our TLDR segment. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. If you want to know more, you can find the complete stories in California energy markets and clearing up. Let's close it out. You ready, Kieran? Ready. That's short to short ground. Short to ground. Nailed it. Got it. Anybody, any interesting stories in there? I'm going to start with you, Ian. Any interesting takes or stories in there that you wanted to like talk about or thought interesting enough to mention? Uh, not as far as stories go, but grammar-wise, I think we should try to never start a sentence with "and so," because it definitely sounded like "and so," and oh. I was, yeah, that that whole the whole rest of that had me reeling. I was like, I don't think that was <laughs> that wasn't anywhere close to grammatical, Paul. Nope. <laughs>
No, that was your only note, though, on the whole episode, grammatically. So I think we did well. I think that we must have done well, right? Yeah, I'm afraid Kieran did disappointingly well at reading those uh, news stories the first time he ever looked at them. Remarkably, uh, Ian was disappointed because he's a cynic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like, when you're a vice president of Bonneville Power Administration, you have to learn how to do things on a crash course basis. Yeah. Hey. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how often people, uh, you know, ran and shoved a bunch of uh, note cards in your hands. And here's your talking points. Good luck. <laughs> Abigail, anything in there you wanted to talk more about? Oh, well, I, you know, I can always talk about my stories. So uh, please do <laughs> promote some stuff. Promote yeah, the, well, crap. It, it, the uh, what's what's lost in the uh, the battery storage issue um, in for Salt River Project that they are putting up 340 megawatts by 2024 is that this is slightly in response to what they didn't get out of state regulators in trying to expand natural gas peaking uh, capacity in their territory. And, and as a public power entity, they're not normally subject to regulatory oversight. However, for power plant siting, they are. And they tried three times to massively expand a peaking plant. And for all sorts of reasons, which you could go to California energy markets and read about, a lot of them environmental justice related, um, they didn't win. So this is why they're expanding the RFP and, and looking for more battery resources. So it's really going to be an interesting ride. and. Uh, Again, there was also mention of my story regarding the election coverage. So uh, we'll know more tomorrow about what's likely to happen in Arizona and elsewhere in the Southwest, but particularly in Arizona, which unique among the Southwestern states, well, not quite if you, you know, considering Utah, um, there is no big RPS standard and decarbonization goal. But uh, a flip of from the Republicans to the Democrats um, in, on the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is still an elected body, a five-member elected body, uh, could see that change. So all eyes on Arizona for energy reasons and others as well. So there one you go. Follow up, one follow-up on that. So where is the SRP uh, natural gas peakers? Is it is it dead? Is it, that's the wrong word. Well, uh, is, is it, it done? Done is it is done? Good question. Well, they they were trying to put 16 peakers in, and right. uh, they what what was left out of the whole argument is well they'd already bought eight, <laughs> so yeah they're holding on to those and they found a place for one so far, and uh, I wrote about that a few weeks back too. Uh, they actually put that peaking unit at or did they put I'm saying it might be two. I think they actually put two of those eight at an existing solar facility, which just, oh. it, well, it was, it, you know, they owned it. Existing and, interconnection. Which, yeah, exactly. So, so they have a place for two of them, which uh, that's an interesting new angle. So, it, you know, it's the copper, copper crossing solar facility, I think has now become the copper crossing energy research facility, something like that uh, in Arizona. So, but they, they had planned to put them at the Coolidge generating station, which is in an historically black community called Randolph, where a bunch of folks who migrated from Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl um, and weren't allowed to buy homes or move into Phoenix, <laughs> set up their community and are now wanting to not just be the place where everybody dumps their noisy natural gas peaking facilities. So, you know, 
They won uh, Indians so far. I'll do one thing before we, because uh, it's a good little segue there. So Northwest Naturals Project, we actually covered some of that. We talked to a Northwest Natural person, Chris Craker, on our podcast, mm-hmm. and, and Matt was there, and, and this project was proposed at eWebs uh, on some land by eWeb, mm-hmm. um, and it was actually opposed on similar grounds, that it was a, a historically disadvantaged community um, with a lot of the industrial situation. So those energy justice articles have been heard in a couple jurisdictions. Um, yeah, good. And Northwest Natural. That's exciting. Hold their application. Um, I'll transition to you, Kieran. Uh, what any any stories in there on your first read through you found interesting? You go click on the article and maybe uh, read some more. Well, one thing that I think you noted it, Paul, when you were going through it, that jumped out at me a little bit. My guess is it's probably simply related to October itself being dry. I was surprised that the forecast was eighty eight percent of normal for <clears throat> the water year the full water year, because with La Nina being in the news and um, I I was sort of expecting it. And plus it is early. It is extremely, this would be the time of year internal to Bonneville where I'd have to remind everyone that you're going to see this supply forecast go above normal, below normal and back again um, at least once over the next three months, because it always does. But uh, I was surprised to see an 88% number, but I'm guessing it's just because October was very dry in the region. Yeah, October was really nice and warm and dry. Go ahead, Ian. Oh, the weird thing, I did a uh, hydro forecast update last week. And last week, it was like 90%. So something since then has done 2% to it. But it wasn't particularly dry this weekend. So No, it was not. It was not particularly dry. (laughs) In my experience, it was not very dry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't look at a regional uh, precip. Uh, indicator, but yeah, my house is uh, soaking wet. Okay, let's transition to the next one. For the season four finale, Public Power Underground solicited mailbag questions from listeners. One such submission was from Therese Hampton, who passed away on September 30th after a bicycling accident. We didn't talk about her conundrum on the season finale and thought as a tribute to Therese, who uh, we all miss dearly, we would include it here for Kieran to answer, really put him on the spot. I know I get, I get deep sometimes. (laughs) Uh, To close out the episode, uh, Teresa's conundrum quote, the volatility and unpredictable weather event effects of climate change are impacting reliability for utilities today. However, the grid infrastructure and new technologies needed to reach the near zero greenhouse gas emitting grid and manage this volatility are decades away, unquote. And the question inspired by her opening monologue from her celebrity guest appearance what opportunity do you see in this mid-transition period, Kieran? Well, you know, I, I think the opportunity, I think we are actually, uh, and I think not beyond those of us who are on this podcast and listening to this podcast, I think people are actually starting to have conversations about energy because it has been a given and something that the huge majority of us haven't had to think about for our lifetimes. So I think there is the opportunity to actually develop uh, an informed society, an informed electorate electorate about energy issues right now. Now, I don't kid myself that there aren't also opportunities to hyperbolize and contaminate that conversation. But frankly, people didn't even want to hear about it early on in my career, right? Uh, When people were raise questions of it. People are like, ah, we have electric. This is America. The lights don't go out, but it's relatively cheap. 
uh, I think I think worldwide now, you're, and unfortunately, I think we're going to get to see some test cases around the world where folks deal with true energy insecurity. Um, and it's going to teach us a lot of lessons. Again, unfortunately, they're going to have to be learned the hard way in some places. But for the United States, I think it gives us the opportunity to get serious, roll up our sleeves and do some things. So, I mean, that's a broad general answer, but I think there's actually an opportunity for positive action here coming up. So I'm pledging to look for opportunities in all of this. And I think we can find them. Um, any words before we go about Therese uh, that you wanted to share, Karen? Gosh, you know, so uh, I, I did uh, consider Therese a close friend, a mentor. Therese was my first boss in power services at Bonneville. She was actually the one who uh, saved me from a corporate position. Uh <laughs> <laughs> at Bonneville. So you, you owe her everything. <laughs> I, I owe Teresa a lot. Uh, and she taught me a lot uh, that served me very well in my career. So I miss her dearly. Um, and for people who didn't know Teresa, just one of the kindest people I've ever met. Well, thank you. And thank you for that tribute. Um, that's all we've got for this week. Uh, Kieran, do you feel valued and appreciated? Do you, have you appreciated you feel like the love coming from Public Power Underground and how fun this I can do. all be? I've enjoyed this, yes. For right. all those that Paul comes chasing after in the future, this is fun. Good, good. <laughs> Abigail, do you feel valued and appreciated? Absolutely. I always do. This has been a great time. Good. Ian, Ian, one of the original, like the original, not one, like the original people on Public Power Underground. Do you I feel, feel appreciated? Absolutely. I mean, the fact that you waited till the last possible minute to ask me to be on here makes me feel so valued and appreciated, Paul. It's the trust we have, Ian. I knew I knew I could just walk down to your office and I could say, Ian, Dan backed out. Can you can you come and do this with me? And you'd be like, yeah, sure, let's do it. You have to understand, Ian, how appreciated that is. And like, yes. <laughs> yes, how valued. I appreciate you fully, but wow, did we appreciate you stepping in. How much I value it. In okay, honor of the World Series, a pinch hitter who can show up in the ninth inning and be trusted. <laughs> yep, that is the value of Ian, invaluable asset. Uh, that's all we're covering this week. The next episode will be recorded on November 14th. To make sure you don't miss it or bonus episodes in the meantime, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric Started utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's so perspective. As always, you can send any news, questions, corrections, or opinions to me on Twitter at a power manager, or you can find Abigail Sawyer at California Energy Markets, where she is the associate editor and reporter for the Southwest. You don't have to be subscribed to the news data and weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed to her own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD and News Data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written by Paul Dockery, Dan Ketchpole, and Abigail Sawyer, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Gillery and Ian Bledsoe. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We 
started in hard times to bring us all in into 